Welcome to the Resonate Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. Good morning, everybody. And I am so glad to see that we've got some visitors here this morning because otherwise it's sort of, you, you, it's, it's much harder to preach to an empty congregation than it is to a, a full church. So, um, I have got to admit that there's a few things that have happened already that tie in with what I want to say. That last song, you know, and the, the thing about love, that's just struck a chord. But also the children's address, because I had to really exercise some self-control this week. Last week when they said that I was going to be actually preaching this week, I knew it was one of the two, God just went boom and that was it. I got the address right then and there and I have spent a week arguing with him and telling him it's not appropriate and I shouldn't be doing this and I know lots of other things that I should be doing, could be doing, would prefer to be doing, but as much as I argued with him, he didn't give me anything else and I know better than just to get up and try and talk without God behind it. So my feeling is is that there is something here for someone here and if the rest of you just sit there and put up with me for a little while, please sort of don't dislike me too much because what I've got, it's not actually starting through the Bible verse and opening it up the way a traditional preacher will do. I will get back to it eventually. And the title... And I don't normally put titles on things, but it just came was the truth about love. And please, I am not arrogant enough to think I know all the answers. As a matter of fact, I probably know less now than I did 40 years ago. You know, the way when you're young and you think you know everything, I grew up and realised I don't. Look, I want to start off with a cultural concept, talking about love. For too long, our culture has been so driven by Hollywood that the concept of love has been watered down and buried in the hazy concepts of romantic comedies, chick flicks and even the porn industry. And even for those of us who do not venture into this world of film, the notions that they portray have become so ingrained in the way we relate to each other, the language we use and how we think that even for us as Christians, it is going to take a conscious effort to come back to a godly focus when we think about what it really means to love. So it's, it's easy as Christians to turn around and say, oh, yeah, yeah, we've we got a handle on love, you know, God loves us, we love God, you're great. But the thing is, you think about a cross. It's got that big bit that goes up and down and it's got that little bit that goes that way, doesn't it? See, love actually has to work on both of those levels. It's us to God, God to us. That's that bit. The problem is we often get this bit wrong. And what is this bit? Can you come stand there just for 30 seconds? Can you come stand there for 30 seconds? When you look at the lateral arm of the cross and Christ was reached out, 
Love is something that goes sideways as well as up and down. So, so that's all I wanted. Ta. Um, but it's one of those things. See, love is something that is between people as well. It's not just up and down. So this morning, I haven't actually got a Bible verse as such. I mean, I can go to 1 Corinthians 13. We all know that one almost off by heart. But love is something that exists on that horizontal level as well. You know, in our daily life today, we talk about falling in love, making love. We use the word loosely about just about anything that we like. Now, I want you to think about this. You may relate to some of these. See, I love my cat slash dog slash horse, whatever. We've got pets. And I'll tell you what. Two years ago, I had to put down a Siamese that I'd had for a long time. And I think I cried for about three days. And I kept crying. Like, it affected me. My emotional attachment to that animal was that strong, I, I, I just was taken unawares. But I love my cat, my dog, my ferret. I've got a niece who loves ferrets. <laughs> Or we could say, oh, I love my car, truck, my house, my kitchen, whatever. You know, they're the things that we have. We love our things. We love our pets. What about I love surfing, fishing, football, work, the activities that we do. And the list can go on and on and on and on and on. We can all think of things that we love. And please don't think I'm pointing a finger at you without realising that it affects to me as well. Because it might seem silly, but when I go up every morning, which pretty much do, to feed my chooks, they see me and they come running up to the gate where I walk into our orchard, which is where I keep the chooks. And every single morning, my greeting to my chooks is, G'day, darlings. Cluck. I love my chickens. We use these words and the concepts of what love entails has become so much a part of our social order that it is not something we even think about. But there is a danger of losing something far more important if we don't stop and take a breath and ponder what has happened. You think about from this perspective... I say I love my cat, I love my farm, I love my chooks, I love my truck. And then I turn around to my wife and say, I love you. When that thought came to me, it absolutely made me shrivel. What am I saying to my wife? I equate you with my cat, my chook, whatever. And that, that is not true. But that's the words that we hear. And, you know, the what goes in our ears, it, it means so much. We take so much from it and it can degrade us and it can make us, it can hurt us, it can make us feel bad. Somehow or other, I need to be able to express to Anne 
my emotion and my feeling in a manner that elevates her, not in a manner that brings her down to the level of my chooks, if you understand what I'm trying to say. And let's get it straight. If we can fall in love, what does that also suggest that we can do? She got it. She knows me. She's been married to me for a long time. Say it loud. We can fall out of love. As a matter of fact, before I met Anne, I fell in and out of love every other week. My poor parents, when they first met Anne and I said, Mum, this is the girl I'm going to marry, and my parents admitted 25 years later that they didn't know whether that was a relationship that would last for a fortnight, a month or whatever because they'd seen so many girls come and go. The point of what I'm saying there is that this, now, this is one of the things I was trying to say to God. I can't say this in church because I'm going to upset somebody. My intention is not to upset anybody. I'm not trying to tell anybody that they're bad or anything, but if we can fall out of love, it's something there that's how our society has come to that place where marriage is no longer expected to last for a lifetime and people are entering into marriage with pre-prepared agreements in readiness for when they are no longer in love. It has also brought us to that place where there is such a phobia about commitment that most people in our society are no longer bothering with the formal and the legal concepts of marriage. In saying this, I am not wanting to hurt anybody, undermine anybody's relationship or anything like that. It is simply just stating what we see in today's society. We see this right where we live. Anne and myself have worked in welfare for such a long time that we've seen probably more of the outcome of that than maybe some of us do. So that's partly an introduction because what I want to do is dig deeper into the truth about what it truly means to love. Now, the Bible, the Old Testament was written in Chaldean and... You're a scholar. What was the other one? Hebrew, of course. I'm sorry. I'm just testing. But the New Testament was not written in Latin. It was written in the colloquial language because even though Latin was the official language, language of the Roman Empire, the trading language, the language that most people spoke then was the ancient Greek. Now, most of us don't speak ancient Greek, but... Anybody who's been in a church for a while will know that there's a few different words that we get to recognise because a lot of people abuse the living daylights out of them and tell us all sorts of things and sometimes we need to go and actually look at texts and read them up and check. There was a group in the New Testament that Paul praised because they didn't just take the word spoken on face value but went and searched the scriptures. And we need to sometimes do that, not suggesting that Jake is not telling the truth or me or anyone else, just we need to check sometimes just for our own understanding. But the ancient Greek 
does not use one word for love. So when I say I love my children, I love my wife, the ancient Greeks would have had different words to cover those kind of things. They didn't only have one word. They didn't only have two words. They had many words, four of which show up in the writings of the Bible. And one of those is so obscure, we'll just totally ignore it because nobody ever talks about it. And the other three that are of interest to us and known by most Christians are, who knows them? Well, that's the top of the list. Nobody, everyone does want to say eros in church. But eros, phileo and agape are the three words. But the fullness of their meaning is quite honestly mostly misunderstood. Why? Well, the reason why it's often misunderstood is that we have a tendency to dumb things down. And why do we do that? Um, we dumb things down because when we're preaching, we, we want to, we, we sort of have this belief sometimes that people we're talking to aren't as clever as us. That, that by the way, is a horrible attitude, but things get dumbed down to make it easy for the church at large to understand. Because how many of us are fluent in ancient languages? You've got one person putting his hand up. What one? <laughs> okay. Now, the dumbed-down list goes along this line, is that people say, yeah, you've got eros, which is for sex, phileo, which is brotherly love, and agape. Now, when most people get to agape, they mumble. They mumble something, but then they'll say God in the middle of it and think that people think they're being very clever. Because most people fail to get a good grasp on the Bible's use of this word and they remain suitably vague while trying to maintain an aura of scholastic cleverness. You know. I've been a preacher for 13 years professionally and longer than that otherwise, so I must be clever. Do you know how many other people started preaching in church when they were 14? I'm, I'm really special, you see. The scary part is, is that when I think about it, that was, yes, yeah, only 52 years ago, 54 years ago, something. Oh, boy. But look, if I want to turn around and say all three of these words can be translated as love, if you're coming from Greek to English, but they all have different meanings. But they also means that in English we have other words that we can use. Like I should be probably saying, I like my chooks, rather than, you know, Anne loves horses. Used to anyway. You know, so it's not just a one-way street. Okay, I want to dispense with the first word. I'll dispense with eros. We'll just get rid of it. It's usually used of lust or sexual attraction, but it also has a place in referencing the love and the emotions within the marriages of God's people. So my feelings for my wife are not just all up on this super spiritual level. There is more to it than that. We, we, we eat together. 
We sleep together. We do all these sorts of things. So there is this, there's a physical aspect to our relationship and it is still godly. But we've just put that all to one side because it doesn't really matter. It's not where I want to drive at this morning. The only reason I even mention it is that it's often discarded just as being just you know, that one aspect of our life. But I want to focus on the other two. And I'm actually going to go to agape first and say this, the reason that it is so hard to pin down what the New Testament writers were alluding to with the word agape is quite simple. It's that the early church took this word and gave it an idiomatic meaning. Now, who I get accused at times of using big words. Does anybody not understand what I mean by an idiomatic meaning? Okay. It doesn't mean anything to do with idiots. Um, How's the best way to put it? If I go to a fish and chip shop in Sydney and ask for a scallop, what am I going to get? Somebody tell me, what am I going to get? What you would call a potato cake. So I'm going to get a slice of potato dipped in batter and then fried. That's what I'm going to get if I ask for a scallop in Sydney. If I go to Melbourne and ask for a scallop, what am I going to get? I am going to get a shellfish that has been mostly destroyed by dipping it in batter and frying it. (laughs) Now, that is what I mean by idiomatic. In one place, it, it, it's, it's, it's from idiom, not idiot, okay? But it, in one place, it, that one word means one thing and in another place it means another altogether because the idiom of that town and that town is different. It was colloquial differences. Does that make any better sense? But the, the church, when in the time of the writers, they had taken the Greek word agape And they had changed its meaning to mean something very specific to the new Christian faith. And it can therefore not be equated to its use in the worldly texts of its own day. So outside the church, agape had one meaning, but inside the church it had another meaning altogether that was focused on God. So the most translation tools available to the average person rely heavily on the general use of agape in that time period, but there are many references to the church adopting the word and giving it a meaning that surpasses the current understanding at that time. So same word, two different meanings. The word that's most often used in describing agape is altruistic, which is good, but it's not the whole story. Now, phileo is far simpler to grasp and is mostly just referred to as brotherly love, but even this is something that is hard to live up to when we look to what it calls for. This is not just something that I keep for my two brothers and nor is it just family-oriented. See, love goes far beyond blood connection and leaves emotional attachment in its wake. Love, even phileo, requires us to act out of determination. 
to count the cost and to be prepared to stand our ground in the face of overwhelming odds. There was an old song around sung by a group called Petra. They're probably all old men by now, but I used to love them. They were a gospel rock band when I was a lot younger. And, And there was one of their songs and the words said, love is not a feeling, it's an act of the will. I determine, I determine, I determine. In a modern marriage, we tend to see people walking away when things get tough. And please note, I am not talking about domestic violence here. That is an offence punishable through police action. I actually have, as when I was an active pastor, I counselled women to actually leave an abusive husband and actually... In just to balance things out, I actually almost had to go to the point of counselling a man to leave an abusive wife. The tough that I'm talking about is that place where relationship comes under the normal stresses of things like emotional tiredness, financial difficulty, physical tiredness, long work hours, Differences of opinion, political variances, children and the responsibility they bring. Now, what do all those things mean? Emotional tiredness. I've been coming home to the same wife for 42 years. Well, now she comes home to me because I've retired. But there are times... When people just get saying, oh, I've been with that one for so long, I'm just tired of them. Mm, grow up. Oh. <laughs> Financial difficulty is such a, a, a big thing in destroying marriages. And Anne and myself, we lived most of our life under the thumb of finance. We've got to a stage now where that's not true. We are content. But physical type, I got old. Somewhere or other, I got old. The bloke that used to go and jump off cliffs for the fun of it, well, I had ropes, but, you know, I used to go, when we went, first came down to the south coast going on holidays, we were in a caravan, pulled up in a caravan park, and I didn't know anything about grain nomads at that stage. And I mean, we were a lot younger than we are now. And Anne came back and she laughed when I came home from being down the beach one day. And she said, the people over the way, they've come over and said, well, you slow your husband down, he's making us tired. I said, what do you mean? They said, well, first light, he's up down the rocks fishing. Then he comes home and grabs snorkelling gear and goes out snorkelling around the rocks. Then he comes home and grabs a surf ski and goes out and spends whole hours on the surf ski. Then he comes home and grabs his fishing gear, goes back down the rocks again. He's gone from sun up till sundown. And we're getting tired just watching him. I don't do that anymore. I get up and mow the lawn and go in and want to sit down and watch TV. I get tired. And that can take an effect on relationships. 
I think we can probably understand most of what I'm saying with those things. It's not an exhaustive list, but there are so many things that will take away and tear down and get in between us. And that's not even looking at things like the enemy of God's people. And it's not only marriage, but what about the phileo that's needed within the church when it gets stressed? We'd never get stressed. No. How many times I've seen people get in a huff because, and and they made a comment, nobody recognises my gifting. They go, (laughs) and they, you know, maybe people there that need to recognise the gifting do recognise it, but they're waiting for maturity to happen. God doesn't just turn around and say, oh yeah, look, I'll I'll plug a little bit of prophecy into this bloke and then say, get up and go for it. Sometimes we've got to grow in those things. When I first started prophesying, I could have hurt people. God showed me stuff about people that if I'd spoken them out loud in the congregation, I would have been lynched. I knew they were true, but thank heavens God gave me an insight that went beyond, oh, God showed me so I've got a blurt. And sometimes I've got to admit I have been deeply hurt by somebody who got up because they had a gift and they said things that A, weren't true, B, were derogatory and very, very hurtful. The church comes under great stress at times. You get some of us turn around and say, I'm on the roster and I don't want to be, on the other, other side of that coin is, That's not fair. They're on the roster more than me. We can come under stress. We can want to be used or not want to be used. We can turn around and say, but that's not fair. I did the cleaning last week. Just simple things. But it puts fracture into relationships at times. What happens if you don't like what I'm preaching today? You can go and get in a snit or you can turn around and say, okay, why don't I like it and what have I got to think about? We've got a new church that's meeting up the road. Why are they there? You don't want to tell me a church doesn't get stressed. They are there for one reason and one reason only. The minister in that church was preaching the gospel and the elders' council of that church didn't like being preached at and being told what God really said. And he was told, given an ultimatum from the people who ran the church on that level saying, you will not preach from the gospels. You will not preach from the Old Testament. You will not preach on these topics. That is a stress on a church. And what about 
If someone comes into our church and we sit there and think, oh, dear, I'm a bit upper class and they're right, they're dregs. Now, we would not say that out loud. But I have seen so many people who have a mental thing where you can see them. You know, I I saw a guy walk into a church one night who was heavily under the influence of drugs. And do you know what the general reaction of the people in that church was? Was, oops. Do you know what Jesus' reaction was going to be? Come. Somehow or other, we've got to put aside some of those prejudices that we carry and we've got to turn around and say, look, I don't care if your social strata is different to mine. I don't care if you don't dress right. I took a long time to get used to a pastor who gets up and preaches with a cap on and thongs. I'm an old dude and when I was a pastor, I always preached in a three-piece suit with a tie, a business shirt and R.M. Williams boots, thank you. (laughs) And here I am this morning in jeans and open neck shirt. See, it doesn't matter that Jake doesn't dress the way I dressed, but boy do I love the words that come out of his mouth week in, week out. And if I don't agree with him, I can go and talk to him. See, we need to be so careful that we don't allow the stresses that are there to affect with our brotherly love. That's not agape. We're not even anywhere near agape. That's just brotherly love. And what happens when you get someone who smells bad or looks dirty? And if you're anything like my wife, she has got a hypersensitive sense of smell. That's not being rude to her. That's just a matter of fact. She will go, oh, boo, one of the cats has done something. And I'll go, you're kidding me. I can't smell anything. But she will go looking. She does that thing like the parable, you know, the the one that's lost the coin. She'll turn the house upside down until she finds this little thing somewhere. It would be much easier for me to accept someone who smelled bad than it would for Ian, just because I don't smell it quite the same. I used to work in Sydney as a welfare officer and I was working on Skid Row with the alcoholics. And I thought that I was all right because I could, you know, I just sat down and I talked to these guys. But there was a young guy there from up in the, like, he was in the height, he, he came from a family that was in the upper classes, I mean the real upper classes, and he lived in one of the real highfalutin suburbs and yet he could do something that I could never do. Every now and again, because these old men that we worked with, the homeless men, they were all alcoholics and quite a few of them were drinking meths and they would get alcoholic diarrhoea. This kid always had a set of speedos with him. One of these guys would come in off the street. He'd just go to his bag, get his speedos, take them upstairs to where the dormitory was and the washrooms were. 
he'd change into his speedos and he'd take this smelly, reeking, filthy person into the shower and gently and tenderly and lovingly care for them. Blew me away. Thou shalt not cry. I don't know why that sort of thing gets to my emotions, but it does. The modern norm tells us that if someone doesn't measure up or causes us any difficulty, then cast them to one side and move on. But love, that wonderful, awkward, frightening concept says that if we truly love, you make a determined stance, dig in your heels and deliberately choose to hold that person close to your heart, to lift them up in prayer before the Father and to weather the barrage of difficulties that the stresses bring. I know of one man when asked at a party honouring a wedding anniversary with a very large number attached, he said, have you ever considered getting divorce? And he replied emphatically, never. Murder many times, but never divorce. You're allowed to laugh. That was meant to be funny. It's only a couple of weeks now until Anne and myself will have been together for 43 years as a couple. Before the end of this year, we'll have had our 43rd anniversary of our engagement and the 43rd anniversary of our wedding. That is a fair while. There are others I know that have had more. When I look back over those times, we have been through some tough times. If I was to say to you that in the society that we know today, that we went through a fortnight where we had no money, we weren't on welfare, but just before our last, with our last little bit of money, the town near us was a potato growing area, we bought a sack of potatoes and we had a handful of chickens. Maybe this is why I like chickens so much. We did not eat because it was breakfast time or lunch time or dinner time. We lived a fortnight. If you heard a chook cackle, you went out and grabbed an egg and you came in. That's when you ate. We've done it tough. There are times I look back and I think, my goodness, how do we survive as a couple? But determined love got us through the hard times and it was those times of stress that glued us together. We, we, were, we became strong. When I say determined, I've got us through many hard times. There have also been times of weakness. And if I was to be truthful, there are the times when we've been safe and secure and the bigger picture failed to blind us to the pettiness of the things that can divide us. In a few years, I'm going to have to set new goals. I have lived my life with one overriding goal. 
Not much else mattered but this one thing. When I walked down the aisle, and, and yes, I did walk down the aisle. We had a church with two aisles and Anne walked down one, I walked down the other and we met together in the front. When I walked down the aisle, I married with a determination that I was going to have a 50th wedding anniversary. Now, goals are great, but I'm getting very close to needing to set a new goal. Otherwise, you turn and say, well, I've achieved that, so scratch your hand, I'll go and find... No, 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 can't do that. What is it that the Word of God says to us? Most of us are going to know that if I make this statement that I'm wrong. If I was to say to him or her who starts the race, let the prize be given. Is that what the word says? To him who starts, let the prize be given? Yeah. The word tells us this, to him or her, I'm putting in the or her because there was the generic him in the original, but to him who endures to the end, let him be given the crown. There is an endurance, an enduring thing in love. It's overcoming the odds. It's holding on. It is being determined to still be there at the other side of the struggle and it is putting the others, the other one first. But more than that, in our Christian life, has anyone here ever been through a wilderness time? Yeah. Do you know, the biggest, I've had many, but the biggest one was Anne and myself were happy. We were on a 3,000-acre farm. We were breeding 2,500 ewes, merino ewes, and back in 1990 we cut $85,000 worth of wool. You go back to 1990 and think what you could do with $85,000 back then, you could do a lot. In our case, we went to zero. However, from that farm, we'd been to Bible college and we just went on with our lives. We are waiting, but God gave us a call to go into ministry. So we sold our farm, we burned our bridges, we went to where we were called and when we got there they said, we changed our mind, we don't want you anymore. And that started probably the most terrifying time of our life for Anne. Because there were times there when I just said, look, I just want to get my guitar, go and buy a gypsy wagon and a horse and, and just lie on my back and pluck the guitar and watch the tops of the trees go by. I was devastated. Up to that time, I knew who I was. I was John the bank officer, then I became John the welfare worker, and I became John the farmer. I knew exactly who I was. And when I sold the farm, I was going to be John the pastor. And now I was John the nobody. Anne was scared witless for some time. 
God used a three-year period where I would probably have rather died than kept on living. And he transformed who I am. And I can remember one morning getting together with some other young guys and I held them to account with me because I could see where I was at. And the prayer I prayed that morning was the scariest prayer I have ever prayed in my life. Because what I prayed that morning was, God, God, do not let me out of the wilderness until you have achieved your purpose. And he did. He changed me. I would have been a brutal pastor because I was so used to driving sheep with dogs, driving cows with whips. Why would I have treated people any different? In my heart of hearts, I was the kind of person that would have just come into the church and said, right, you do this, you do this, you do this. Don't argue. Just go and do it. You go and do this, you go and do this. And God transformed me into somebody that was totally different to that. Sometimes the endurance is where we learn the most. And I'm just realising how long I've been taking to make this point, so I'll better close up fairly quickly. Love is the most painful the most costly, the most soul-destroying commodity there is. But then when you get to sit with your dad when he's just lost the girl he has loved so well for over 70 years, you get to hold a newborn baby, to stand in the stillness of a sunset with the love of your life and watch the serenity fall across her face in the peace of that moment. Or you get to witness the hand of God touch a heart that has accepted Christ. Feel his presence touch your spirit and hear him speak. Then you suddenly realise that love is what conquers all. Because you see, now I've got one more sentence and I'm finally getting to the Bible. Jesus, for Jesus, love meant accepting the mandate of the Father and taking the form of an infant. It meant leaving his place beside the Father in heaven. It meant submitting to the rules of earth and facing crucifixion, not because he wanted to, but because he set about to be obedient to the end because both Jesus and his father loved the world so much that together they did what was necessary to provide the way back for fallen mankind. Not a way, the way. Truth about love, that's what it boils down to.
Thank you for listening to the Resonate Podcast. 